Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra Micro Diameter Injection Arrows. Injection utilizes the new Deep Six standard for more big game penetration than ever before. Learn more about the injection today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and yeah, we are in the very best time of the year for bowhunting. Uh, seasons are opening up out west right now, uh, actually getting ready to head out on an antelope hunt this coming weekend. I'll be out in South Dakota chasing pronghorns. I've got an elk hunt here in September, and honestly, by the time uh, this episode gets up on iTunes and a lot of you folks are listening to it, I bet you whitetail seasons are opening up. Uh, early archery seasons uh, throughout the eastern half of the United States. So for sure after a long, hot summer, uh, this is the time I've been waiting for. I know it's the time that my guest has been waiting for. I've got uh, a return guest, one of the very finest uh, individuals that you could ever meet and one of the very finest uh, whitetail experts that you could find anywhere, none other than Dr. Grant Woods, our whitetail columnist at Peterson's Bowhunting. Grant, great to be with you today. Christian, thanks for the opportunity. Um, Grant, I say, you know, we've been looking forward to this time. I, I have, our, our listeners have, I know you have, and you put an awful lot of work in uh, on your own property, on clients' properties, in managing habitat, uh, doing everything you can to get uh, the whitetails on those properties into prime condition, and you've been running trail cameras all summer. We were just chatting a little bit before we uh, started the show today. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of great trail camera pictures from you, uh, from your property and some of the other properties that you manage. And I know you're excited about hunting some of those bucks. And today, you know, hopefully a lot of our listeners are in the same boat. They've identified some deer. And so now we're getting ready to head into the season. And we kind of got to shift gears from that from that, uh, you know, taking inventory and kind of getting a game plan together to execution. And I thought we could talk a little bit about how you use trail cameras and other observations to scout throughout the season in an in a, uh, you know in a non-intrusive way, so that you can kind of put yourself into position to succeed from the early season all the way through the late season. Christian, you're exactly right. I mean, we're all excited here. We can't always stand it. Everybody's slipping out to practice their bow and you know, do whatever, but we have been doing a trail camera survey. We're just about to finish that up, and I think it's really important, this may sound off-subject, but for everyone to realize that a white-tailed deer's biggest motivation is not food, cover, water, it's fear. And so how we use our trail cameras needs to have that in mind so we don't think we're gaining scouting information at the same time, turning deer in our area nocturnal or even shifting them to a different part of their home range. Mm-hmm. And so, so what we do to that, you know, right now we, we have feed on the ground, trophy rocks on the ground, and that's legal here in Missouri preseason. We have to stop before the season starts, and we're getting an inventory of how many does and fawns we have so we can kind of calculate if we need a doe harvest or how many and then how our bucks are doing and which ones we estimate are what age so we don't have to try to make that decision in a moment of excitement because usually when I do that, I end up with a lot of ground shrinkage when I walk up to the deer. So I kind of want to know what's going on ahead of time. But we're pulling all those cameras and move them, and our season opens September 15th, 
and we will have a few acorns on the ground this year, but not many that early. So we'll have those cameras on food plots, even big feeding fields, uh, and put them on some type of time lapse or something put on your branded camera. So you're taking a picture every couple of minutes, the first hour or two in the morning and last hour or two before dark, and get a pattern of which fields the deer are using and which way they're entering and exiting. And we can check those cameras without alerting the deer in the area. Right. I mean, that's the thing, both with what you're doing now, like most of the pictures you know, that I've been seeing from you on Facebook uh, of late is like you said, you've got a trophy rock and possibly some corn or other feed scattered on the ground. And it looks like you've got those cameras set probably in areas where you can literally just about drive the truck right up to those or the, or the, the golf cart or whatever you're using. And you aren't doing a whole lot of walking around on the terrain to check those cameras, right? No, yeah. You know, we shut it down. I, I have a lot of local buddies that like to groundhog hunt and we've got way too many groundhogs anyway, but about a week ago, I shut them all down. I, I want to get rid of groundhogs, but there's a, a trade-off between disturbing this deer herd. You know, the bucks in velvet, certainly summertime, let their guard down a little bit. They're in basher groups. They're pretty lazy, actually. But that start, you're starting to see some friction and some kicking and a little bit of dominance, dominance sorting out, and bucks are getting more alert. And we want to let that disturbance level get really low. So any trail camera work or trail camera survey work right now is going to be done within 15 yards of a logging road or something where we're they're used to seeing vehicles and we're not busting back through the timber several hundred yards where our stands are. Gotcha. And so then you're basically going to going to shift not not really too far from where you're using them now to just putting them on plots. So again, as the season approaches or opens early in the season, again you're not you're not taking those cameras and going into you know, what we'd consider sensitive areas. Absolutely not. You know, we don't do that at any time of year unless it's a very specific situation because if you think about it, you've got a tree stand, you know, your favorite stand, you're saving it for pre-rut when the bucks are cruising, it's right outside of a bedding area where maybe he's scent checking for does or whatever. Every trip, I think it's really important to understand, you know, mature deer, mature bucks have some level of memory. That's for certain. The amount of memory hasn't been quantified exactly, but we certainly know they have memory. And, and again, fears are number one motivating factor. So walking in there, even during the middle of the day, whatever you're doing is, whatever you're doing is allowing some level of additional predator scent to get in there or sound or disturbance or whatever's going on. And I want to minimize that. I want the deer to be on their natural behavior and unalerted, not not alert, as much as they can be. Not only for them to continue using that area, but then even right before the shot, we all know that, you know, those mature deer can jump string or get out of the way too quick as it is. So I'm going to have my, my, all of our stands are set right now. The only new stands we will put up is if we happen to find like a white oak tree. I live in all timbered areas, so a white oak tree really raining or, you know, we just happen to find some sign or something on the way to another stand that says, ooh, we got to hunt this. Other than that, we are out of the woods until we hunt. And we're never going to put our trail camera right at a stand location because to go check it or get the data is just another intrusion into the core area of a mature buck, and that decreases our odds of seeing him during daylight. Mm-hmm. So, so will you run your your cameras on the food plots uh, throughout the whole season? Do you move them to other areas besides food plots? Or No, I'm going to say 80% of our trail cameras, I'm a trail camera nut. I've got reconnex cameras over the property. My wife's scared to go out anywhere in the woods and, and do anything because she's afraid I'll have pictures of her. So we, we she shed hunts all times all over the property. So anyway, 
what we do is leave them mainly on our plots. Because even when the acorns are on, deer will usually venture into a food plot to get some green late at night or something. <clears throat> and that's okay because I, I won't necessarily get pictures during hunting hours, but I'll get pictures of the mature bucks. I'll know what portion of the property they're on, which way they entered the field, which way they exited the field, and that's the information I want. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I know, well, they typically bed here or I've seen them there. And I can start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and figure out their travel routes in the woods, which is where I'm going to ambush them. And how much, how do you decide how to use the information that you gather with your cameras, Grant? And what I mean by that is this, you know, as, as bull hunters, you know, the vast majority of us have, you know, maybe if we're lucky, two or three modestly sized properties that we mm-hmm. may have permission to bond on. Sure. And we only have so many stands and we want to uh, allow ourselves to enjoy good hunting throughout the season. So if I have a particular buck, let's say I've got a good buck, you know, in an area, maybe I have some trail camera photos to indicate that he's he is in a certain area, you know, I'm getting some photos of him and say in a certain food plot, mostly at night. Um, let's say it's early in the season though. How do I decide whether I want to go into one of my stands that might be a little back in the timber near that plot? Uh, do I want to do it in the early season? Do I want to wait, you know, later until I think maybe he's going to be more active during the day? How do you decide, you know, when to act on information and when to just kind of file it away and bide your time? That is a great challenge for every bow hunter out there. I think there's, you know, in reality, you see guys <clears throat> that tend to tag good bucks every year that are, you know, like you're talking about, hunting a couple of smaller properties, uh, really hustling, not, you know, not living on 20,000 acres in Mill of Iowa or something like that. And there's guys that get one or two a lifetime. And the difference often is those that really think through on whatever information they have from the bus driver to rural mail carrier whatever it is where bucks are seen and they start getting a pattern not just of an individual buck but bucks in general in that area and then hone that down to the individual buck so i know here that bucks like to travel right outside of a steep ridge my land is very steep very steep topography and they often will be 20 30 yards off the top of the ridge where it rolls over a little bit where that wind's really swirling wind usually swirls off the edge really bad, and that's why they travel there, so they're getting 360 protection, basically. And they're going to travel that, coming and going to feeding, bedding, or even later scent checking does, whatever. So I rarely hunt food plots. I'm going to hunt in the timber where, and this is really important, where I can enter the stand, hunt the stand, and exit the stand with a low chance of alerting the buck I'm hunting. So I'm going to wait for the wind to be right. I'm going to hunt whatever day I get off work, whatever I can hunt, I'm going to hunt. But I probably won't hunt my, my what I call my best stands, you know, everybody's got their hot spots or whatever, unless the conditions are exactly right. I'd rather go set 300 yards away and use my binoculars to scout the area and see if I can pick some moving up and maybe a deer walks by me or I grunt it in or whatever. But I'm only going to go into those stands you're talking about. Well, I've got some pictures there or something's good. When the conditions are right, and that deer is totally unalerted to my presence, even if it means dodging a few hunts there. Mm-hmm. And that tactic of, of that patience has changed me from 
just candidly an okay hunter that you know gets a deer every now and then to someone has repeated success just by not necessarily hunting more but hunting smarter and being willing to be patient so i've got stands that are in marginal areas and i use those to help get my doe quota you know or sit my brother-in-law in hope you're not listening daryl you know or something like that and and i'm gonna hunt those myself on the days i get off and i want to be out in the woods and i'm gonna save those best stands for the conditions to be that i'm not alerting the deer and I'm not going into the core area. I mean, the deep, dark, you know, right next to the bedding area. Boy, I know this is hot, but i got to be sensitive. Until pre-rut or when I think that deer's let his guard down a little bit and he's cruising and moving pretty quick. So right now, opening of bow season, bucks are thinking food cover, food cover, food cover. And you got to be careful or you're shifting totally nocturnal at this time of year. I'm probably not going to hunt right over the food source. Because if you bust a deer right now, you know, let's say you're 200 yards off a field or a food plot, and you bust him, he'll probably still come to that food plot, but you're taking an alternate route. If you're right on the food plot and you bust him, you've shifted that deer nocturnal most likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, there's, yeah, there's some definitely some deer, depending on the lay of the land and what they're doing and where they're coming from, I guess it can be, it can be almost impossible to hunt him maybe on that the food pattern if if you can't figure out a way that you can get on and off that food undetected you know and and getting you know of course like i can i can think of a particular situation you know you know of a that buck that i've been watching Mm -hmm. here and and i'm thinking i I know i can get in to a, a bean field where i think he's probably coming out in the evenings let's say you know that buck hangs around after he sheds and he's coming and i get like some trail cam pictures that show he's coming in to feed i can get in there no problem but i'm not sure i can get out (laughs) and and that's just as important as getting in as you know so you know i prefer when my wife or somebody comes and drives to the stand i just i want to blow them out with a vehicle not me Mm -hmm. so if i don't if i don't have that situation where i've got a good exit strategy i just don't hunt that stand because it is that critical yeah, because if you don't get them on the first set, you you may, like you say, not have blown your chance, you know. It, and another huge factor with trail cameras, and this is, I think, kind of new to a lot of guys and gals, but it also lets you figure out which deer are killable. You know, if you've got a big buck and, man, you're drooling over and you're watching it, but the only pictures you ever have anywhere are not time, mm-hmm. don't waste your season chasing that deer. Right. Until you get some evidence, there's some, because there are deer that only move at night. I mean, they're just not moving where you can get to them in the daylight. And three years ago, I had a buck here that would have been the county record. Literally, we called him Giant 10. He was a great deer. And I spent a two years, a year and a half, just hunting that deer. I mean, that's all I worried about was that deer. And I never had a daylight picture of that deer. And he got killed during the gun season, during the rut, a mile off my property, apparently got behind Betty Lou during that magic time of year and got dead. And, I, you know... My local game warden killed deer, so I got to see him, touch him, and confirm his measurements and all that. But I wasted a lot of time chasing a deer that was basically unkillable. And so I've re- that really cemented. I knew theoretically not to do it, but the antlers attracted me in, just being honest. So now I look for a mature deer, that mature for my area, wherever that is. That may be two, three, four years old, depending on where you are and your land mass, all that stuff. That shows some sign of daylight behavior. And that's a deer I want to target. Yeah, one other thing on trail cameras before I, I want to move on to a couple non non trail camera oriented topics, but um, 
I wanted to talk briefly about the issue of, of negative data, or that's my term, I don't know if it's the right one, but basically what I'm saying is, you know, uh, we all put cameras out, we want to see pictures of good buck on our camera. Uh, cameras can be just as useful for putting in adjacent areas where maybe you don't want to see that buck because it kind of shows they're not going there. I'm thinking again for that same deer that I'm watching, there's a swamp across the road from the area where I've been getting pictures of this deer and I've got a camera down there too and I'm getting pictures of a lot of the same deer in the bachelor group but I'm not getting any pictures of that particular big buck over there across the street you know so again during the hunting season that could tell you whether he's moved to a new area but if you're not getting pictures you know you can actually confirm that he's probably still in where you think he is if you don't absolutely. get pictures absolutely you know I try to teach our grad students all the time that negative results are just as useful as positive results because that's important to know also, and that's true with what in the application you just described. Um, so again, that's that can be another way, um, and in keeping with the whole theme of not educating the deer, you know, if you have a pretty good reason of confidence, you know, that you think a deer, maybe you're much better off rather than like you said, barging right into the middle of that you know, secure bedding area, trying to get some more pictures of that buck to confirm it, just take two cameras and put them on either end of that area. And if you don't get that buck, chances are, you know, he probably still is in there and, and you can continue hunting the fringe of that area, try to intercept him and save, like you say, that best stand for the pre-rut. Um, you mentioned observation stands and, and obviously that comes into a whole nother area, which is just, you know, physical personal observations how much of a role does that play in your hunting strategy whether that be the observations that you make from those hunts when you're kind of hanging back from the areas that you know are a little hotter or even just going out in the evenings during season and, and spotting deer whether that be you know at early or late or in states where it's legal um like for instance here in pennsylvania it's still legal to spotlight deer at night uh not during the gun season but during archery season it is so how much do you actually go out and observe deer and and use those uh observations yeah a bunch you know i used to live in south carolina years ago and it was legal then to ride around spotlight before season and during some portions of the anyway and look at deer and that was big recreation everyone really enjoyed that it was a I can see where it was tough with the game wardens because they didn't know if you were, you know, just out with your family wanting to see some deer or, or you were had a 270 in the back of the truck. But in Missouri, I spend a lot of time where I live now where that is not a legal practice with my Nikon just, just looking from one ridge to the next. I'm usually, you know, several hundred yards away from the area I want to study. So there's no chance of the wind swirling or busting me over there. And I enjoy that. And sometimes you see a deer closer. Uh, but usually I'm focused on, you know, a far ridge or a far food plot or or a, 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 I love watching because we're all timbered here, so visibility is limited. I love power lines, power line gaps, because deer move freely across those power lines because uh, there's a little bit of brush and stuff in there from one wood block to another. Mm -hmm. So which direction they're going, power lines are a huge part of my strategy. Deer will cross power lines because they're there. They've been there for, you know, decades, most of the power lines. Deer cross them freely. And the great thing about power lines in mountainous country like where I live, you can come up one side of a mountain, the deer on the other side of a mountain didn't hear you, didn't smell you, they don't know you're in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of my strategy. And I have several just old ladder stands, safe old ladder stands, propped up on the side of power line I call observation stands. They're not set well for bow hunting at all. And I'll, you know, I'll park 70 yards down on one side of the ridge if there's a logging road or something crossing there. 
pop over the ridge with the wind in my face, the deer on the other side have no way I know I'm in the world, and watch which way they're crossing, who's crossing, and that way I can hone in and scout with, with what I call MDE, minimal disturbance entry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, another another way, obviously, to do in-season scouting is, of course, uh, sign. And it seems like the hunting world has gone, uh, I don't want to say 180, but it's amazing, you know, the, the conventional wisdom of yesteryear but compared to what seems like is becoming the conventional wisdom of today. You know, it used to be, I don't know if it was 10, 20 years ago, um, there was so much interest in scrape hunting and finding the freshest sign and hanging stand right there. And, uh, or guy would find a big rub, you know, and he'd be right on that. And now I'm starting to see and hear so many of the, uh, some of the well-known deer hunters who saying, you know, almost ignore the sign. And um, talk to me a little bit about that, Grant, how that thinking may have shifted and what kind of sign should guys be using in making hunting decisions and what kind of sign might we be better off not paying so much attention to? You know, that's a great point. In uh, 1986 through 88, I did my master's thesis on scrape behavior. And there were a lot of other scientists around America and graduate students working on scrapes and rubs and whatnot. And that's right when the very first really crude by today's standards troll cameras were available. And so scrapes, I, I think troll cameras have totally replaced that because scrapes were where deer were. And we, we would get so excited. I found a scrape or I found a bunch of scrapes on this acorn flat or whatever the situation was. And it was the next best thing to pictures because we never dreamed about you know, putting the unit out in the woods and getting pictures of deer. Or even now getting real-time pictures sent to your cell phone if you've got one of those web cameras or something like that. So I think the the excitement has been lost, just like checkers is now replaced by digital games because now you can get pictures and confirm not only there's a scrape, but which deer was there and what they're doing, which direction they're going, and all those things. We used to take black thread and tie over the trail, and go check and see if it had been broken, and then we would look at which way the thread was dragged through the bushes, and we would know which way at least one deer was going. And we didn't really know if it was a deer or a coyote or anything, to tell you the truth, and we would you know, try to tie it higher so it would have to be a buck of a certain size with antlers to break it or whatever, and we thought we were the slickest kids in town, buddy. I mean, we done figured something out, mm-hmm. and now no one even think about carrying black thread through the woods or worry about the sin on it or something like that, so... I agree with you, that has changed. I still love sign and use sign, probably because I did my research on it, but about the time people find most scrapes, deer are finished visiting scrapes, and that's where I think that momentum died. Scraping peaks or occurs when the bucks are super excited, but the does basically are not receptive at all yet, or very few are receptive. And so it's kind of almost pre-pre-rut, so to speak. And if I'm going to hunt scrapes, it's going to be really early. There's going to be a lot of scrapes in the area. They're going to be right on the edge of a bedding area. It's like almost a staging area where some bucks are coming out, and they're really ramped up and ready to go, and none of the dates are ready yet, and and they're marking a lot of a lot of the area. Scrapes are not territorial, by the way. They do not mark the boundaries of a deer's home range. Deer don't defend territories. They don't fight over boundaries at all. That's That's predators, coyotes, and wolves do that. Deer do not do that at all. But scrapes certainly mark areas, and and I should say right here that our research clearly showed that about 70% of scrape visits were does and fawns. So 
So just because you find a scrape doesn't mean there's a big old buck right there. And a lot of scrapes are not revisited. So if you find a scrape that's, you know, as big as a car hood and really smells, you can smell it from 50 yards downwind, and it's really early, mid-October or so, in most of the whitetails range, and that's an area I would set up. Okay. And what about uh, tracks? That's kind of a lost art, too. A lot of guys used to study tracks, and they'd say, well, this is a, a big buck, you know, and I can tell from his tracks, and that's how you know, I, I find my deer to hunt. Is that anything that you, do you look much at things like tracks or concentration? Well, we, you know, I live in, uh, where I live now is in southern Missouri, the Ozark Mountains, we're really rocky, so we get real excited when we see tracks, because it means we got some dirt there, literally, but <laughs> we don't see a lot of tracks, but I, I did a lot of research in South Carolina, I went to school at University of Georgia and, and Clemson, so spent a lot of time in sandy soil. And there was a lot of this talk, you're right, back 20, 30 years ago about tracks and is that a buck or doe track, whatever. And So being a scientist, I wanted to research it. So what we did, we took several hundred deer, literally, and took calipers, and we measured their hooves, and we put a quarter-inch spacer, a quarter-inch piece of plywood in between every deer to equalize it. So that's not how a deer walks, but we needed some way to make it equal. You know, are we pinching these toes too tight? Are we holding them too tight? Mm. And we measured hundreds of deer, hundreds, hundreds of deer. And what it turned out is the bottom 10% or so of tracks are fawns. Okay. The middle 80% can be buck, doe, or fawn. Some deer, I mean, I've measured does that had huge club feet. And I measured some big bucks that had small feet. And the top 10% are usually mature bucks. I mean, you know, the, the, the biggest NBA player that has whatever size, 25 shoe or something, there's probably no woman has a foot that big. So the biggest of the big tracks are almost always bucks. But get down below that 90% level, you don't know if it's a buck or a doe. That's what I love about you, Grant, because I just throw something out there at the wall, and you're like, oh, yeah, we studied that 25 years ago, got our calipers out, measured uh, 200 deer hoofs. Here's the data. It wasn't real popular <laughs> when we published that because at the time, it was believed that, you know, the buck showed its dew claws is what you used to hear, or the buck had broken hooves all the time because they're fighting and pushing all these stories that were not true. And it's, you know, you're never the popular guy. When you're the fact that kills a ruthless gang of theories, you're never the popular guy. So, yeah, we did that, and, and we published it. They used to sell calipers. A guy would sell these calipers, and, you know, and you would measure the track out in the field. Oh, that's a buck track. I'm going to set my stand up here, and that didn't work out too good. So the bottom line is tracks are... They're a great indication of deer activity, but yeah. not necessarily a real reliable indicator of uh, sex or or maturity. Well, again, unless it's, it's, unless it's, it's a, a huge, really, yeah, a really yeah. big You know, track. if it's a huge track, I get excited. I'm like, man, that's got to be a buck. Uh, but, but if it's not, like, you know, way bigger than average, it's a deer track. Yeah, and it might be a good buck. It might be a good buck. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think, I'd like to add one more thing to that. Yeah. Sometimes we as biologists, because I'm a hunter first. I mean, I, you know, I'm, and you know me, I'm a passionate hunter. I only became a biologist to give me a reason to be with deer more out of the year and get paid for it. That's the only reason. And, and so we all tend, myself included, to, to make deer these mystical, mysterious, almost uh, non-understandable. Well, they are, they're supernatural, Grant. Yeah. Sixth sense, understandable. And deer are just like, you mean, you know, I just finished judging the the the, the uh, Toll Outdoorsman's Championship yesterday. Just it aired this fall, but anyway, I just and 
and I can't give anything away, but I will tell you there are guys of all sizes, big and small and left and right, north and south. And I don't know why, but we got to talking about boot size. And there was big old 200-pound-plus competitors that had size 8 boots, and there were some smaller competitors that had size 11 boots. And just like in humans, deer, not all big deer have big feet. There's a trend that way, but certainly not 100%. And, like, I was the tallest kid in first grade, me and Kevin Smart at my school, about 140 kids in my, cl- my whole class size. And everyone wanted me on their basketball team, me and Kevin Smart, always the first kids picked over recess. And then by freshman in high school, I didn't even make the basketball team. And some deer start off with great big antlers as two-year-olds and never really express a lot more. And some are two or three, and then all of a sudden, boom, they blow up. And some deer are shorter-bodied animals. They're never going to be a big 350-pound stud. And, you know, and so we manage by averages. But when you're hunting and you're really serious about killing mature deer year after year, you hunt the individual deer. Because if you hunt the averages, you're going to be beat. It's like going to Vegas. If you play the averages, Vegas is going to win. That's just a given fact. They're going to win more than they lose. And if you hunt mature bucks based on averages or generic sign, you're going to have tag soup more than you go to the tax service. And I, I stake my whole reputation on that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, the reason, you know, one of the big reasons that I wanted to have you on the show today is um, somebody like yourself, um, you know, this is a job for you as much as you may enjoy it. You know, I have a saying, uh, you know, I'm sure you get, a good amount of ribbing from your friends as do I for what we do for a living and I always tell people you know that the amount of fun that you have or don't have while you're working is is not an indication as to whether that's work you can have a job that makes you absolutely miserable or you can have a job that you love (laughs) they're both work um but uh you rely on you know uh being successful or at bare minimum having encounters with deer uh, for part of your, you know, your living, if you, if you're not able to go out there and, and stay on top of the action and put some exciting encounters, you know, on film for your, for your web show, uh, to be able to show the results that you produce for your clients, then, um, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to do as well as you would otherwise. So uh, I take things that you say to the bank and, and between, you know, the, the practical application, as you said, you're a hunter first, and the, the scientific data, the studies that you've done, uh, the studies that other people have done that you're aware of and the way that you apply those things to what you're doing as a hunter, um, you know, that's a tough combination to beat, and the results speak for themselves. Well, I... I agree with you. Every, you know, I have responsibilities, but I, I really enjoy what I do. I believe God put me here, literally. I mean, it's literally to be a deer biologist, and so I, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. But it is. There's responsibilities and jobs and pressure, just like we all have, and a family to feed. And but I love seeing deer. I mean, I'm, you know, we've been incorporated 23 years. I was in grad school a long time for them, and. Uh, yesterday, when I was leaving this competition, I, a fawn crossed this logging road in front of me. We're back in the boonies filming, and I just stopped, and I got my cell phone out, and I was taking pictures, and I was studying it, and I was looking at the spot pattern and wondering if there was another fawn around and where the doe was because I knew she was at the hearing range, if not sight range of my truck, and could I see her, could I find her. And I'm still as excited about seeing that fawn 
and trying to figure out what makes that fawn tick and how does it survive when coyotes and bears and ticks are trying to kill it on a daily basis. Uh, that drives me as much as anything. I just just seeing deer and and trying to understand them and then uncover these mysteries and share that with other people so they can enjoy those encounters is really a passion of mine. Well, you know, you provided some good information today, and and uh, you know, from a big picture standpoint, I think that you know, for me, it's something that you know I'm kind of coming to now. Um, you probably came to it some years ago, and you said, you know, it was a key for you in, in changing you from that guy who kills a good buck every now and then to kills, you know, a good buck most years. Is just that whole idea of discretion being the better part of valor, you know. I think that is probably the biggest mistake so many of us make. We, we charge in, you know, too clumsily and too soon. Uh, I think that uh, I'm learning that the hard way myself and, and uh you know, being being um, being able to use those tools that we have our, at our disposal today, whether that be a good uh, pair of binoculars or a couple good trail cameras to keep tabs on things, uh, satisfy our itch to hunt from some of those observation stands and move in for the kill uh, when the time is right. Uh, that's kind of a recipe for success. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think the biggest component of all that success, of course, is our is our ability to think, our onboard computer, our God-given skills, our, our brain, and and really applying them. I mean, really thinking. I mean, there's days I just want to recreationally hunt. I just want to go unload or turn the cell phone off, whatever, and I'm absolutely going to one of my observation stands because I'm not keyed up. I'm not a predator on those days. And, and there's days when I'm feeling it. You know, man, I can tell I'm a predator. I'm alert. I'm wired. I'm ready to go. And those are days when the condition's right, I'm going to move in for the kill. And it's literally... We need to put ourselves in the mindset that we're the predator God built us to be. You know, we've got canine teeth and a gut about 33 feet long. We're built to eat meat and vegetables. And, uh, and, and that predator instinct is lost a lot in our society as far as hunters, and, and we need to re- resurrect that. We need to be the predator we're supposed to be. And, and that predator is not plunking in. And, you know, you don't see coyotes carrying the propane heater and, you know, the backpack and the TV so they can watch the football game on Saturday while they're deer hunting. you got to be a predator out there. <laughs> okay. Put away the buddy heaters, boys. Suck it up. Get out there. And uh, come bring home the bacon. There you bring have home it. the bacon. That's your marching orders from Dr. Woods. You know, leave the buddy heater at home and uh, man up and keep your focus and get the job done. You know, and I've got, let me follow up by saying hunting should be fun. I've got kids and an 83-year-old dad that we're looking forward to this hunting season as much as we did, oh gosh, 44 years ago when he took me on my first deer hunt. And I made noise. I was the one I can remember clearly. We were muzzleloader hunting, and I had his ramrod using it as my pretend gun and pointing at every squirrel and bird we saw, and he didn't have a chance of killing a deer. But he loved me right through it, and here I am today. And and so hunting should be fun, and whatever level of intensity you want to practice, if it gets out of being fun, it won't last very long. Mm-hmm. For sure. And your dad is going to have a hard time topping the deer that he got last year. Ooh, that was a fun hunt. You know, for me, I mean, you know, my dad enjoyed it. He's 83 and got a lot of great hunts. That was one of my favorite hunts of all time. Just the experience of sitting there visiting while the, while it was still a little warm, sun was up high. And, 
Then as we both just instinctually got quiet as the sun started setting behind the mountain and we knew it was time for something to happen, that bond, you know, I think especially between a father and a son, and after years of a hunting relationship, my dad's always been my best friend, uh, you know, it can't be replaced. No matter what I accomplish in my hunting career, I doubt that can be conquered. Well, let's hope, Grant, that you and I both make it to 83, and when we do, our own children, uh, you know, take the time to get us out in the field, and we may be able to look forward to something like that someday, too. So I wish you and your dad a a great season together. I know you have some good bucks to chase, and uh, I'll be looking forward to getting those continued updates uh, through your website, uh, through Facebook, and as always, appreciate your time today. I appreciate the good work that you do for Peterson's bow hunting with your whitetails column, keeping everybody up to date on the latest uh, deer-related knowledge. Uh, I enjoy looking at your stuff every month, and I know our readers do as well. So uh, best of luck to you, and again, thank you. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new ultra-micro-diameter injection arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.